Good morning and happy Sabbath. Today we are continuing our study through the book of First Peter. And today we are in First Peter chapter 4. Before we begin our study, let's go ahead and bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the message of 1 Peter. And bless us now as we study your word. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Peter chapter 4 is the subject for today. And just by way of review, we are going to highlight some of the themes from the first three chapters so that we understand where Peter is headed in chapter 4. As we recall, in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter addresses those who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. He talks how that we have been begotten again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fades not away. And we see with this inheritance that's incorruptible that part of the experience of the Christian life are the trials of our faith. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, and how that the trials of our faith produce in us an experience that is more precious than gold that's purified with fire. Because when we are purified by the trials of our faith, our faith and our experience becomes more precious than that of gold. And then we see, continuing on through 1 Peter chapter 1, um, how we're exhorted to gird up the loins of our mind to be sober, to hope to the end, to be obedient children, to be holy in all manner of conversation. And the word for con conversation means conduct. And verse 16 says, because it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. And we recall that holy conduct prepares us for the judgment because that is what we will be judged on. As we continue through chapter 1, we see that we are born again out of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. And it's interesting, we, when we go through the trials of our faith, which purify us, which make us holy, that helps us to be incorruptible. And in verse 24, Peter says, look, all flesh is like grass. And when the heat comes, when the sun bears down on grass, the grass withers and fades away. And human beings of the flesh, when the trials come, we fade away. And yet he is saying when we are incorruptible, born by the word of God, we do not fade away. And then the transition into chapter 2, we see that as newborn babes, we grow. Eventually we are described as being a chosen generation, a royal priesthood um, that is built upon the foundation of Christ. And then we are given the example of Christ. This is how Christ lived 
as incorruptible seed through the trials of life. When he suffered, he threatened not. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. He committed all to him who judges righteously. And it's interesting, he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. These are the descriptions also of the 144,000. And the question is then, how are we tested? How did Christ leave us an example? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 3, it's like, here's some trials of your faith. Women, those of you who are married to ungodly men, this is an opportunity for you to show the character of Christ. The next example is, when you are tried for your faith, Verse 15 says, Be ready always to give an answer for the reason of the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. Do we back away from our faith or are we ashamed of it or do we give an answer when we are tested and tried? And we get to the end of 1 Peter chapter 3 and we see that Jesus is seated on the right hand of God. Angels, authorities, and powers are made subject unto him. You may think, how is it possible that I can pass through the trials of life? How is it possible that I can be like Christ? Look, Jesus has gone into heaven. He is on the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject unto him. And that leads us now to 1 Peter chapter 4 which begins in verse 1, and it reads, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. Now there's a lot here in these first two verses. Notice what Peter is saying here. And it's a summary statement. He says, for as much then. It's like saying, therefore. Therefore, or for as much then as Christ hath suffered for us, where? In the flesh. So, therefore, as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, and the Greek word here for flesh is sarx, which includes mind and body. Notice what it says next. So he suffered for us in the flesh. It says, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. So how do we suffer? Christ suffered for us in the flesh, and we arm ourselves likewise with the same, notice it doesn't say flesh. It says with the same mind. Now that's interesting. If we're to arm ourselves likewise with the same mind, and Christ suffered for us in the flesh, and in that flesh that he suffered, we arm ourselves with the same mind, where does that tell you that Christ suffered in his flesh? Clearly, in the mind. In Christ's flesh, his suffering took place in his mind, and we are called to have the same mind or to arm ourselves with the same mind. And that, of course, reminds us of the passage in Philippians 2, which says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let's read that. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. 
And well, actually, we're going to start in verse 2. It says, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of, lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So just as we are to arm ourselves with the same mind of Christ in 1 Peter 4 verse 1, we, have, we are told to have the mind of Christ in us. And what was this mind who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of, the, of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, it's interesting. When we are told to have the mind of Christ in Philippians 2, we're told to avoid certain things. Well, first, we're told to be like-minded, to have the same love, to be of one accord, of one mind. That would certainly be to be of the mind of Christ. But here's some things to avoid. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. And let's esteem each other better than ourselves. Now, imagine Christ's struggle when he came to this earth. Christ came as King of kings and Lord of lords. He was equal with God because he was God, and yet he became a servant of man. He was in a lowly state. He was born in a manger. Imagine how trying it must have been as he was being tempted, as he was being tried, as he went through the experiences of life here on this earth, knowing that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and the temptation it must have been to say, don't you know who I am? How dare you treat me like that? Don't you know I created you? I mean, imagine what he must have been thinking. And yet, we are told to arm ourselves likewise with the same mind. So we should not be doing things for strife or vainglory. We should be esteeming others better than ourselves. And it's so easy, according to human flesh, for people to strive for supremacy, to want to have power, to want to be in a position that tells others, this is how you're going to do it because I say so. And yet Christ humbled himself. He esteemed others better than himself. He gives us the example to follow. And in 1 Peter 2, it says that when he was reviled, when he, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. But he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. And when we are being mistreated for doing what is right, that is the greatest trial, the greatest suffering that will come. And Christ, who was in our flesh, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh in Romans 8, 3, and 4. He was made in the likeness of men. He, in Philippians chapter 2, he came in the seed of David according to the flesh in Romans 1, 3. In Hebrews 2, it says, he also himself likewise took part of the same as flesh and blood in Hebrews 2.14. In Hebrews 2.16 it says, In all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. This all tells us that Christ took our fallen sinful human nature and he suffered in the flesh, in his mind, 
and we suffer in our human flesh, in the mind, and yet we are told to have the mind of Christ. What mind is that? When we suffer for wrongdoing, I mean, sorry, when we suffer for doing the right thing, and we take it patiently, and we f don't fight back, that is arming ourselves with the mind of Christ. Because that is, Christ, that is what Christ did when he was on trial. And notice what it says here. It says, For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Imagine that. When you arm yourselves with the mind of Christ, and when you do so, you suffer in the flesh, Scripture tells us that we have ceased from sinning. Now, in Hebrews 12, it tells us to lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, the, and to run the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We see that he clearly did no sin. And yet, in verse 4 of Hebrews 12, it says, Ye have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. Notice there, resisting unto blood striving against sin. That clearly parallels with the concept of suffering in the flesh. That means resisting sin unto blood. And when we do so, when we resist sin unto blood, striving against sin, that's the same as suffering in the flesh and ceasing from sin. And that's exactly what Christ did. And it's interesting, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, Two, it says, Christ did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Why did he do no sin? Because in his mind, he suffered in the flesh. He resisted sin unto blood, striving against sin. And it says that he left us an example in 1 Peter 2.21, that we should follow his steps. He did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. And so here again in 1 Peter 4 verse 1, for as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, or resist sin unto blood. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Now, I don't know about you, but that's the experience that I want to have. In the flesh, it may not seem pleasant, but to cease from sin, to have the mind of Christ, that is the experience that I want to have. Amen? Amen. Now notice verse 2, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. Now it's interesting. So that we, we no longer live in the flesh. It's interesting, Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Romans 7 describes the whole experience of living in the flesh, being carnal, sold under sin, or in other words, being a slave to sin. And Romans 6 clearly tells us that the wages of sin are death. But instead of living in the flesh to the lust of men, we live to the will of God. Now, it's interesting. In Hebrews 10, it says, Christ came to do the will of God. Psalms 40 verse 8 also tells us that Christ came to do the will of God. And Psalms 40 verse 8 says, Christ says, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. So Psalms 40 verse 8 clearly tells us 
that the will of God is God's law written in our hearts, which is interesting because Hebrews 10:16 tells us that the new covenant is God's law written in our hearts. So when we arm ourselves with the mind of Christ, when we suffer in the flesh, ceasing from sin, living to the will of God, we are living according to God's law, or we are living a new covenant life. Now it's interesting, in another place in Scripture, this is actually 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, notice what, how the will of God is defined in 1, Peter, sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. It says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. So what is the will of God in 1 Thessalonians 4? It is sanctification. So when you suffer in the flesh with the same mind of Christ, according to the will of God, you are living a sanctified life. And Jesus Christ lived a sanctified life because it was Christ who said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thine be done. Christ was suffering for us in Gethsemane, in the flesh, especially in his mind. The temptation was in his mind, and yet he suffered for us in the mind, in the flesh, and lived according to the will of God. And that is the life that we are called to live. And it's a high calling, but praise God, he gives us power to follow his example. Now notice verse 3, For the time past of our life may suffice us, to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of ye, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. Now notice this. Many of us here have had a conversion experience, and we have friends from our former life who remember us. Perhaps they remember us when we were rabid sports fanatics, when we knew all the, all the statistics of all the players and all the teams. And now when they ask us about the playoffs or the World Series or the NFL, we don't really know what's going on. And they think, boy, that's strange. How come you don't follow that anymore? You used to be a rabid sports fan. Or maybe... They remember you, you when you used to party and drink and get drunk, and you don't do that anymore. And they're like, man, you used to be the best partier in town. What happened to you, man? You used to know how to really have fun. Are you a goody two-shoes now? But yet, we don't live that life anymore. Maybe they remember you when you used to dress like Jezebel, or Madonna, or Britney Spears. They're like, you know, you, you dress like you're wearing potato sacks now. What happened to you? And yet, you're converted now. You're not living to the lust of the flesh, walking according to the will of the world of the Gentiles. You're not living according to lasciviousness or lust or excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, abominable idolatries. And you know what? If the world wants to think that we're strange, so be it. Now, obviously, Ellen White even talks about how we shouldn't dress like gazing stocks or be disagreeable Christians or be hey, ornery or like 
being a holier-than-thou type of Christian, but the point is, when we become converted and we leave the things of this world behind, there will be a clear difference that will be seen between us and the world. And if the world can't tell that we're a Christian, as I've said before in, the, in some of our classes, if, the, if people at work don't know you're a Christian, it might just be because you're not one. And we need to be surrendered to the Lord every day so that we will exude His love, His character, His righteousness, so that people will see Christ living through us, that they will see the mind of Christ in the way we carry ourselves. And notice, it says, Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? Notice that we will give an account to God who's ready to judge those who are living and those who are dead. And those who are living according to the lust of the flesh will be judged accordingly, whereas those who are living according to the will of God will be judged accordingly. Now, how is it that we know how to live based on the fact that a judgment is coming? Notice verse 6, it says, For, for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, and watch unto prayer. Now notice this, it says, The gospel was preached also to them that are dead. Now some people say, see, the dead aren't really dead. The gospel is being preached to them also. Now you have to understand, Peter is writing under the assumption that you understand the issue of the state of the dead. And so he is saying, those who are dead, when they were alive, the gospel was preached to them, just as we who are living today are having the gospel preached unto us, so that we will know how to live our lives, so that when our names come up in the judgment, we will be found on the right side. And you may say, well, what, the gospel? I thought the gospel was a New Testament element. How could the gospel be preached to people in the Old Testament. Well, it's interesting. Paul, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, tells us that the gospel was preached to Old Testament Israel. Notice Hebrews verse 4, starting in verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. And he's, he, this is following Hebrews 3 where he talks about how the Old Testament nation of Israel always hardened their hearts and how God said they couldn't enter into the rest that he had promised to them because the word preached, the gospel, did, was not mixed in faith with them that heard it. Clearly those people are dead, so the gospel was preached to them as well. So that's what verse 6 is referring to. And this gospel tells us that we might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according... Sorry, let me say that again. The gospel is preached that we might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. So what's that saying? In the judgment, even though we live in human flesh, if we live according to God in the Spirit... As he, Romans 8 says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, we will be found on the right side of the judgment. Why? Because there's no condemnation. 
Now, verse 7 says, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. So when we have the gospel preached unto us, when we understand that we are not to live according to the flesh, but under the, after the Spirit, the thing that we must do is to be sober and watch unto prayer. The only way that God will give us power to walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh, is to pray, to watch, to be sober, and to ask earnestly for God's power to be imparted to us to live the victorious Christian life. Continuing on now in verse 8, it says, And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Verse 11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, here we see Paul get, or Peter gives some practical illustrations in verses 8 through 11 of how to live the practical, victorious Christian life according to the will of God while we are waiting for the judgment. He's like saying, above all things, that fervent charity or love among yourselves, for love shall cover the multitude of sins. It's like, you know, if we really loved each other, it would take away so many of the issues that we face during this time. It's like, you know, if the people that you like least are the people that you know at church, there's a problem with our Christian experience. We are not suffering in the flesh, having the mind of Christ, because Christ was mistreated, Christ was abused, and yet he took it patiently, and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's so easy for us, humanly speaking, to say, oh, that person, I can't wait till God shows them a thing or two, because vengeance belongs to him, and he's going to pay them back in the judgment. Yeah, show them. And that's certainly not having charity among ourselves or love among ourselves, because love will cover the multitude of sins. It says, use hospitality one to another without grudging. We shouldn't grudgingly help one another out, but we should be th with thankfulness of heart helping each other out. And it talks about, as every man hath received the gift, we should minister one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And, and so... In verse 11, it says that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And then Paul starts, sorry, I keep saying Paul. I'm so used to teaching Paul. Anyway, Peter here in verse 12 of chapter 4 says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Now notice, if we take the mind of Christ, we are going to suffer in the flesh. And it's that experience that will help us to cease from sin 
which will prepare us to be like Christ, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, so that we will be ready to stand in the judgment and be found without fault before the throne of God and to have no guile found in our mouths, just as the 144,000 are described in Revelation 14. And so how is it that we cease from sin? How is it that we are purified so that we will be like Christ? It's the fiery trials that allow us to be partakers of Christ's sufferings. And notice it says when his, that we should rejoice that when his glory shall be revealed, we, we may be glad also with exceeding joy. Now notice, his glory will be revealed when he comes back the second time. But certainly, Christ's glory was also revealed in how he lived his life here on this earth. And when we demonstrate the character of Christ, and God's glory is his character, when we ex exhibit his character through the, our trials and through our sufferings, his glory is revealed through us. And so it is a privilege to be a partaker of his suffering. When he comes in the clouds, we will be glad with exceeding joy. And when his character is revealed through us, that should be a day of, of rejoicing and gladness. And of course, we won't know that we are exhibiting his character because the closer we come to the Lord, the more imperfections in and of ourselves we see. And yet God will know that person has ceased from sinning. They have been purified. And of course, we will continue to remember all of our shortcomings and failings. And yet Christ is purifying us. And he's saying to his father, see this brother, this sister, they have become like me. So we should rejoice. Now, and again, when we suffer, when we go through trials, I mean, Scripture tells us all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So when we have Christ's mind, when we have his character, we will pass through trials and sufferings. Continuing on in verse 14, If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon ye. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. So, if we're reproached for the name of Christ, we should be happy because we are suffering for the name of Christ. And that shows that we are living the life that Christ wants us to live. But notice verse 15, it says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Now this is interesting. It's like, look, if you are a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other men's matters, you deserve to suffer. And don't suffer for things like that, because God has made it possible for, to give us the victory over things such as murder. Now, I hope none of us here would even think about murder. And yet Christ tells us in Scripture, those of you who hate your brother are a murderer in your heart. So if you say, boy, I hate so-and-so at church, I wish they were dead, you're committing murder in your heart, so be careful. Or as a thief, certainly we don't want to steal as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. You know, um, it's none of our business to get into other people's lives, and it's none of our business to gossip about them either. So if we suffer for doing those kind of things, we're asking for it. And scripture is saying, don't do those kind of things. Verse 16, yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed of it, let him glorify God on this behalf. So if we are suffering on the behalf of God, that is what we should be suffering for. And, and so, Peter is making it very clear. We've seen it in 1 Peter chapter 1, how the trial of our faith purifies us. 
and in 1 Peter 4, when we take the mind of Christ, we will suffer in the flesh, which will help us to cease from sin. And in verses 12 through 16, we see that we shouldn't think it's strange to suffer for Christ. We should rejoice because we are partakers of Christ's sufferings. And we see that God is being glorified on our behalf. And it's interesting. The very next verse, verse 17, which is a familiar verse to Adventists, verse 17 says, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel? So notice, judgment begins first at the house of God. So we know that as God's remnant people, as a Seventh-day Adventist people, we will be judged first. And what will the judgment be based on? Well, according to 1 Peter chapter 4, it's, it's going to be, how did brother or sister, how did brother John or sister Mary, how did they handle the trials of life? Were they like the children of Israel of old, who every time a trial came, they murmured in their hearts and they exhibited unbelief towards God? Were they like praising God every time life was going well, when they got a new job or a pay raise or got a good grade in school and finished at the top of their class and they were saying, oh, God is so good. We are so thankful. We love him with all of our hearts. And then when a trial comes, when someone in the family gets a health problem, when someone loses a job in the house, when there's conflict in the family, when things just aren't going well, when there's trials among brothers and sisters at work, then we start questioning God. Well, how could God allow this to happen to me? Did God just lead me out here to have a miserable Christian life so that I can't have fun like the rest of the world? That's what the judgment is going to be based on. And, and yet, if we are like Christ, having the mind of Christ, so that when we suffer for doing the will of God and we take it patiently, we say, praise the Lord that I can suffer for Christ. Praise the Lord that I can give glory to his name for living his life, even though the world hates me and no one else understands me. If we can suffer and take it patiently, when the judgment begins in the house of God, Jesus, who is our advocate, will say to the Father, this person is just like me. They have my righteousness. That is what the judgment is going to be based on, which is why scripture tells us that the judgment will be based according to our works. And the question will be is, is it Christ's works in our lives or is it our own works? If it's Christ's works, we will have the same mind as him and demonstrate the same life that he demonstrates. If it's our own works, we will be complaining, murmuring, and being like the children of Israel and living the old covenant Christian, or the old covenant experience, it's not a Christian experience, that tries to follow God and yet we do it our own way. And notice verse 18, it says, or it, notice the first, the first half of verse 17, it says, and if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel? And it's a rhetorical question, but it's like, boy, if you're not obeying the gospel of God, boy, what's your end going to be? And notice verse 18, it says, And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Now notice verse 18, it says, The righteous shall scarcely be saved. It's like, this certainly 
counters the idea that it's so easy to be saved that anybody can just roll in um, through this broad gate that you just basically float down the river through. And yet Peter is saying, no, the righteous will scarcely be saved because we're going through the trial of our faith. We are suffering in the flesh. It's a fiery trial. And we are called to suffer in the flesh by arming ourselves with the mind of Christ. And Scripture says the righteous will scarcely be saved. And if we're scarcely saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? Now, before I make it sound like it's so hard to be saved that hardly anybody will be saved, Scripture makes it clear that God has provided all power for anyone to tap into that power, that He is able to keep us from falling, that He is able to save to the uttermost those that come unto God by Him. That's Hebrews 7. So we know that salvation is readily available because God is all-powerful. And yet, because of the fiery trial, Peter's saying, look, the righteous will scarcely be saved. Few will go through this straight and narrow gate. Many will go through the broad gate to destruction. So verse 19 says, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. So notice this. When we suffer, it's according to the will of God. And the will of God, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, is sanctification. Or according to Hebrews 10.7 and 10.16 and Psalms 40 verse 8, is God's law in our hearts. So when we are following God's law, when we are living a sanctified life, when we are arming ourselves with the mind of Christ, we will suffer according to the will of God. And when we, when we do so, we commit the keeping of our souls to Him in well-doing. And that's exactly what Jesus did. When He suffered, He threatened not. When He was reviled, He reviled not again. But He committed Himself to Him that judgeth righteously. So when we are suffering, when we are being threatened, when we are going through the fiery trials of life, we commit the keeping of our souls to Him who judges righteously as well. We commit our souls to Him in well-doing. We do so, and notice to who we are doing so, as unto a faithful creator. We know that God is creator. We know that God is judge. And that's a reminder to us that if we don't believe in God as creator, if we don't believe that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, then we're going to have a hard time exercising faith. In fact, it will be impossible for us to exercise saving faith. So what is the message of 1 Peter chapter 4? What is the message of 1 Peter? We have one more chapter to go after this. The message of 1 Peter is, is that we will suffer for our faith through the trials of our faith. And that those trials in which we suffer will purify us into that which is more precious than gold tried in the fire because we will be purified in, in, into an incorruptible seed that is made just like Jesus. Jesus who took our fallen sinful nature and suffered for us in the mind makes it possible for us to suffer in the flesh and to cease from sin because He 
suffered in the flesh. He gained victory over sin in the flesh. Romans 8 tells us that he condemned sin in the flesh by coming in the likeness of sinful flesh so that the righteousness of the law or the righteousness of Christ might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. And when we walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, we will suffer in the flesh. We will go through fiery trials. And yet it is that experience that will prepare us to stand in the judgment when the judgment begins at the house of God. And we are living in the time of the judgment. The judgment of the dead began in 1844. And Ellen White tells us, soon, none know how soon, the judgment of the living will begin. And the question will be at that time, how are we living our lives? Are we living after the Spirit and not after the flesh? When we suffer in the flesh, have we armed ourselves with the mind of Christ? Do we live our lives the way Jesus Christ is, is living? Because Christ is seated on the right hand of God in 1 Peter 3.22. He has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject unto him so that we can walk not after the flesh but after the spirit and we can have Christ's righteousness fulfilled in us. So let us who suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of our souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. May we be faithful. And let us close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the message of 1 Peter 4. May we arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. May we cease from sinning. May we commit our souls unto a faithful create, as unto a faithful creator. And may we rejoice when we suffer for your sake. Thank you for all that you've done for us. And may we give our lives to you completely. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.